Welcome to the Shields Outdoors podcast, your source for information on hunting, fishing, and all of your outdoor passions. Johnny, Jason, excellent job on night three of the virtual fish series. Way to just end it with a bang. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yep. There were, uh, you know, there were so many questions on Facebook and on YouTube and, and you guys knocked out a ton of them, had some, you know, some great information. I'm going to have to go back and listen to all this and, and hear all that stuff. But so we've got still a huge list of questions left. We're going to try and get to, you know, hopefully get to all of them as many as we can. So, um, this is a, basically a bonus podcast that we're doing. And the goal is to just rapid answer these as, as, and get through as many as possible. So if you guys want to just take turns answering one and we'll just, we'll just knock these things out. Does that sound good? Okay. Yep. That sounds Perfect. great. Perfect. Okay. So this one could be long, but let's try and make it short. Favorite fish story. Actually I have both of you do this one. <laughs> How do you pick just one? Truly <laughs> <laughs> impossible. Uh, I don't know. Uh, that for me, that my favorite story has changed so many times over the years. Um, having lost my father and my grandfather, both now uh, my two mentors in fishing, I can distinctly remember the first ten-pound walleye I landed personally. Uh, on my dad's charter boat in the company of both my father and my grandfather. Uh, the fish is still mounted. Uh, it sits on my desk in my office at home in Devil's Lake. And every time I look at it, uh, the flood of emotions is just unreal. And probably wasn't anything special other than the fact it was a 10 pound fish. Uh, but looking back now, that fish symbolized so much of my life and what fishing has come to mean to me that 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 has to be the most memorable one for now but i'm sure it'll change right give me a week give me two weeks let my grandkids catch their first fish uh, i'm sure it's going to change again and again and again as life goes on and that's what's great about fishing mm -hmm, absolutely and you know my my new favorite fishing memory is with my daughter like going all crappie fishing and she just pulling a bunch of them herself as a five-year-old. So it can definitely change. How about you, Jason? I would say it's uh, some of my kids' first fish, you know, where I remember when they were young, you know, kind of doing a lot of things for them and then uh, watching them catch some fish kind of all on their own, you know. And, and you know, when if you take kids fishing, you know, you see some things that are just meant to be where they do a few things wrong, you know, and I'm telling them, I'll keep the rod bent, do this, do that, or whatever, nothing matters. I mean, some fish are just meant to get off, some fish are meant to be, but uh, like I remember my watching my son catch his first smallmouth on a topwater. I mean, that just, that was a life-changing thing for him, you know, I mean, so I would say some of my, some of the fish my kids have caught have been some of my favorite. Very cool. <laughs> All right. Uh, best Devil's Lake fall tactic for walleye. For me, it's uh, trolling cranks. You know, either on you know, usually on a hard bottom. You know, whether it's a, some of the old shorelines have a lot of rock. Some of the road beds. I mean, that's pretty, um, pretty solid. Early season uh, rod and reel setup. Light tackle. Oh. Probably going to be pitching a pretty light jig somewhere. I would say uh, for me, it would be uh, the six foot nine inch. I love the Ibisu Pro medium light, extra fast rod. Uh, I'm going to put a size 2,500 or 2,000 reel on there. 
It's going to be spooled with eight pound super line of some kind, whatever your favorite is. And I'm going to have a three foot fluorocarbon leader with uh, probably a quarter or three sixteenths ounce jig and a plastic tail. And I'm going to take that anywhere from Devil's Lake to the Rainy River to the Missouri River to Spirit Lake, Iowa, and anywhere in between. And you're going to catch something on it. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And big fish on light tackle. So fun. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, biggest bait you're willing to use for walleye? I don't know. I mean, you look at, uh, I suppose for myself, eight, eight inches, nine inches. I've caught a lot of walleyes throwing musky bucktails, you know? So, I mean, I know we can use bigger, but you know, you look at like a 25 long a bomber or the biggest reef runners, um, you know, larger size tail dancers, the free divers, you know, that's a larger profile. That's probably anywhere from six to eight inches long, but I know fish, I know big walleyes in particular will eat a lot bigger. Also. Mm, absolutely they're a predator fish you get them angry enough they're gonna hit it uh what's your go-to jig and minnow cadence uh go-to jig and minnow cadence would be a lift a hold and a drop uh the length of the hold all depends but uh i like to make bottom contact every time i drop it so i'll drop it to the bottom lift it hold it four inches, five inches off the bottom for a couple seconds, drop it to the bottom again, lift it up and hold it steady. Nice. Do you like using jigs with spinner blades? I have, you know, especially casting and reeling, you know, uh, with weed fish. And then I use them sometimes on a slip bobber in the wind just for a little bit added attraction, but it's not a big thing that I live and die with. Okay. Here's a good one for you, Johnny. Best way to learn or get better with my electronics. Hint, hint, hummingbird session. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Come to Shields and take the bring your own hummingbird class. Uh, no, uh, honestly, the best way to get better with your electronics is take a day, take every rod and reel out of your boat and go spend six hours on the lake and drive around and look at your electronics. Uh, I don't think people spend near enough time focusing on their sonar and GPS because we all want to fish when we get on the water. So we drive to a spot, we see fish and we grab a rod and reel and try to catch them and we quit learning our electronics. So leave your tackle at home. You'll learn more about your depth finder. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. For crankbaits, do you prefer snap clips or directly tied on? I like to use snap clips. Just, uh, I'm changing lures all the time. And, uh, the biggest thing is if you lures comes out of tune, for example, you need to get rid of it or change it. And so I always use snaps. Uh, fishing for big female walleye and spawning. Good idea. Not a good idea. Uh, I am not going to be anyone's moral compass. (laughs) I, I love to fish early in the spring. And if you're fishing early in the spring, you're going to catch a big fish. I personally put them back, let them go do their thing. Uh, But again, the state regulations, some places the season's closed and you can't fish for them. Other places the season's open and you can. And I've had a lot of fun in my lifetime catching really big walleye early in the spring, putting them back and letting them do their thing. And I sleep really good at night when I do it. So but it's up to each individual to make that decision. That's, that's a good answer. Um, biggest fish you're willing to eat? Biggest walleye? Boy, I think it varies on the fishery, and I think it varies on the person and the day. If 
I'm really hungry for fish and all I caught was a 22 incher, which is what a four pound fish. It's all you've caught all day, you know, and, and for some people, they don't get to fish very often. And so, um, I mean, I like to eat 13 to 18 inch walleyes, even 13 to 15 inch walleyes is my favorite. I get to fish enough where I can be particular about what I eat. Uh, some people don't get to fish very often. And, um, and you take like a place like Lake Erie, you know, where, you know, you're going to see people keep the limits of fish that are, you know, what, you, what people in the Midwest would consider too big. So I think it can depend on the fishery. Um, what's interesting was with the paddlefish management, for example, they have mandatory keep days with the paddlefish snagging. And the reason they have mandatory keep days is that way, whatever population of fish, whatever year class of fish is most represented in a population takes the brunt of the harvest. And so, uh, you know, so some lakes or some states, for example, where you don't have a slot limit, you don't have a size limit, people keep the first five fish they catch. And chances are, wherever it's going to be the most represented is going to take the brunt of that harvest. Well, then it leaves the other year classes alone. And so there's a lot of different ways to look at fish management, whatever. And it's, it's you know, obviously some lakes, you don't have a choice what you keep because it's either catch and release or it's there's size and slot limits to work around. But uh, other lakes where there isn't, you know, I think it just varies by the person. I get to fish enough where... I like to keep small fish and uh, throw the rest back. But, uh, you know, there's also angling mortality that comes with that as well. So, mm-hmm. How do you tell the difference between a male and a female walleye? Technically, you can't uh, until you cut one open. Uh, it's real easy to fall into the size can determine that. And I guess after a certain point, uh, you play the numbers game, the bigger the fish, the less odds of it being a male walleye. But as far as I know, there is no way other than looking inside that fish at its reproductive organs to know what it is. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's, it's not like deer hunting or pheasant hunting or duck hunting where it's obvious what you're looking at. Uh, and again, no way to be a hundred percent certain ever. Mm-hmm. Does your length of leader change in clear versus dirty water and lakes versus reservoirs? Yes. Um, it can really vary from lake to lake. You know, like Malaxia was notorious for, you know, long snails. Some of that is the mud where your weight would actually, you know, stir up the mud where it was like a water visibility thing. And years ago, we didn't realize that. And we just thought it was because these fish are so smart or, you know, or particular. But, uh, you know, you get really, really clear water. Um seems like I'm using longer snails, um, using less braid, uh, using a lot more fluorocarbon. And, uh, you know, you get stained water. You know, a lot of times I'm using a shorter snail, but I use the shortest snail I can. You know, with longer snails, you're going to have problems. It's harder to set the hook. It's harder to keep fish pinned up. And so I use the shortest snail I can. But um, I've seen it over and over where, um, you know, where long snails were the answer. You know, I'm talking, you know, 8 feet, 10 feet, you know. But uh, usually it's an arm length for me, which is 6 feet or shorter. So, okay. Can you briefly explain seasonal temperature uh, walleye locations? Uh, seasonal walleye movements. Uh, I don't know. It seems like early in the spring, uh, immediately after ice out, uh, the fish don't necessarily know the ice is gone. So that first week or two, they're still relatively deep on those last few ice fishing spots as the water warms up and their metabolism tells them it's spawning time they start moving 
either towards current or towards spawning areas, which are usually shallow, rocky, gravelly spots. After the spawn is over, they disperse usually to the nearest flat to their spawning habitat, and they start roaming around looking for schools of bait. Uh, then as spring turns to summer, we start to get weed edges, and some of the fish tend to head towards weed edges, while other fish go to those classic midsummer walleye structure type spots. And they tend to stay there for quite a while. Uh, sometimes fishing doesn't change much from June till August. Those fish hang out in, in the same places all summer long. Uh, water gets warmer, fish start to move deeper. And then I think the last move is when the water starts to cool off. You'll have vegetation start to die, which will push fish out of the weeds or into the remaining green weeds, which makes those spots absolutely incredible in the fall. If you can find the few remaining green weeds in September and October, it's absolutely incredible fishing. Uh, but they tend to move to those steeper, deeper, hard bottom areas that we're all very familiar with for fall fishing. And then once the ice comes, uh, it's kind of anybody's guess, right? You've got main lake rock structure that holds fish deep, and you've got lakes like Devil's Lake where you can go up in three and four feet of water and drill a hole and catch a walleye through it, which absolutely amazes me. So uh, once winter time comes, uh, it's almost anybody's guess. Wherever that fish feels comfortable and can find some food, that's where they're going to hang out. Great answer. In reservoir lakes, will the wind direction affect the current? I think it does. I think the current is a way bigger factor than uh, what a lot of people consider, you know, because the biggest thing is, you know, most of these reservoirs have these big tributaries and these big bays, you know, so you'll have a really strong wind that'll push water up into a bay. And then the next day when the wind lays down, that water moves out. And so I believe that uh, wind does play a big factor on current. And I think that's probably the biggest thing that, uh, we probably don't understand to the fullest is that uh, there's a lot more current pulsing and changing from day to day than what we ever realized because it's not above the water where we can see it. So, Interesting. Best walleye recipe. Can you repeat that? Best walleye recipe. Ooh, I really enjoy the walleye chowder that my family makes. Uh, at the house. Uh, it's like a New England style clam chowder, but we use walleye chunks instead of pieces of clams. And if you're really lucky and you save up enough walleye cheeks and use that in your chowder, you've got uh, a walleye recipe that will blow your mind. It's absolutely incredible. And now you've that got me hungry. Good. <laughs> Favorite? Share that. Yeah. I'd be glad to. Yeah, I'm, I'm storing that one. Favorite low-budget reel? Oh, boy, there's a lot of good reels. You call low-budget. I'll say low-budget, anything from, say, 30 to $60, okay? Um, what and this is my opinion, but I think I'm pretty spot on with this, is what used to cost, say, $100, um, say, 15 years ago, probably cost $50 today. And so the stuff is – the equipment's gotten way better, whether it's rods or reels. You get a lot more rod for a lot less money today. You look at what a top-of-the-line rod was, for example, say, 25 years ago, 
uh, whether it's some of those old Berkeley Bionics, some of the first series ones. I mean, those are iconic classic rods at the time. You get a rod that's very similar today for 60 bucks. Same with reels. And so um, I think Shields has what it's called a Outfitter series. It's that silver and red reel. I've been using that. And that's just bulletproof. I think that's about what $69.99. Am I right on that? Yeah. Better double right, check right that right before that. <laughs> But that's a phenomenal reel for the money. Phenomenal reel. Mm-hmm. How does the fish become high in mercury levels? I wish I knew the answer to that. <laughs> I mean, uh, I would, I would guess it's mercury. just yeah. Age, hey guys, I got right? a one here to pick up my daughter, but I can hop on and answer more questions here later on. So okay, yeah, that sounds great. I'll just hop on Facebook or whatever and try to knock a few of them out or whatever you need help with. So awesome! Hey, appreciate your time, Jason. You bet. Good seeing all you guys. Good yeah, luck to fishing see you too. Jason. Best yeah. of luck out there. Yeah, I, I'm not certain about the, the mercury level thing, to be honest, Mike. Uh, obviously, pollution uh, in the in the bottom of the lakes has a lot to do with that. And then they have to eat something that ate something with mercury in it, right? Walleye don't swim around eating mud off the bottom of a polluted river in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, and I'm just through Chicago out there randomly. There's no, uh, no reason I picked that. But... They don't eat the mud sediment. So how they ingest mercury, uh, I am not 100% certain how that works. Uh, I do know that there are a lot of bodies of water across the United States that have uh, fish consumption advisories, and it's probably smart to pay attention to those. Uh, and that's, that's what I do when I travel to areas that they only recommend one meal of fish a week. I probably don't fill my freezer with those fish. I wait till I'm somewhere that's maybe a little more pristine, a little cleaner water and use those fish to, uh, to load up for the fish fry for the family. Makes sense. Top two are lures for weed fishing walleyes. Oh, probably a shallow diving crankbait, one that dives just over the weed tops. Uh, and that may change from day to day, right? Weeds grow constantly. Some areas of the country, they grow really fast. Uh, so you might have to have three different crankbaits over the course of a week, but you want a lure that will dive just to the tops of the weeds. And then for fishing the edge of the weeds, I love to throw a jig with a swim bait on it. Uh, three and a half, four, four and a half inch swim bait, quarter ounce, three eighths ounce leadhead jig and fire it parallel to the weed edge and try to retrieve it right along the edge of the weeds and just hang on tight. Mm, yeah. Parallel weed bed fishing. That's a, that's a <laughs> lot of fun. That's a real deal. Um, okay. Best time to fish clear lakes. Night. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, what triggers a fish to bite? Well, there's a lot of things. Uh, you know, I say this all the time. Fish don't have hands, right? So if they want to eat something, they grab it with their mouth. If they want to kill something, they grab it with their mouth. If there's something in a fish's way and it wants to move it, they grab it with their mouth. They are not like human beings where they can grab it and shove it out of the way or push it and knock it down and swim past it. So uh, you can trigger a fish to bite your lure by convincing it that it's food, or you can trigger a fish to bite your lure by convincing it that it's in its way and it needs to get it out of the way or make it mad for lack of a better word. So, uh, people call those reaction bites. I really don't like that term because every bite is a reaction. 
it's a reaction because of a different reason, but they're always reacting to your lure. But yeah, you can either convince them that they're hungry or convince them that they're mad. But as long as you get them to put the lure in their mouth, who really cares? <laughs> yeah. Good answer. Uh, favorite lure for night fishing? Boy, if I'm going to fish at night, I'm usually trolling crankbaits. And a lot of times it's your traditional minnow style crankbaits. Uh, uh, a number 13 original floating Rapala has probably caught more walleye for me after dark than any other lure I own. Mm-hmm. And what are you doing for color at night? Uh, usually something uh, with some contrast. If there's a, a bright moon, I love the standard classic black and silver, right? Uh, there's just enough silver flash that the moonlight will reflect off the sides of the bait. Uh, if there's not a lot of light, then I'm going with uh, something that's just dark and light, maybe a, a white side with a black back, uh, maybe a dark purple bait with a chartreuse belly, uh, something with a lot of contrast. Uh, they're really only seeing the silhouette uh, at nighttime if there's not much light anyway, so color isn't nearly as big of a factor. Okay. Uh, steering wheel bolt or a tiller? Oh, I'm a wheel guy and a windshield, right? Don't don't put me out there in, in November with a tiller handle and make me drive across the lake with the wind and water in my face. Give me a give me a steering wheel and a windshield and uh, a really big mercury motor. I'm going to be happy. <laughs> Is there ever an instance where you'd rather have a tiller? Uh, not really. Uh, I know a lot of folks think and they're not wrong in their thinking that boat control is absolutely incredible with a with a tiller steered boat. There's no doubt about it that there is that school of thought and they're not wrong. But the the uh, progressions of electric trolling motors the last decade, uh, I've got 112 pounds of thrust with my Minn Kota Altrex trolling motor. And man, it takes a 25 mile an hour wind before I can't keep my boat where I want to keep my boat. So I would just as soon have the windshield and the steering wheel and be comfortable and then get on the trolling motor when I get to my spot and keep me there that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would guess, I mean like budget fishing, if you can't afford like, yeah, if you're talking, yeah, I guess Mike, if, if we're talking a, a 14 footer on a 600 acre Lake in Northern Minnesota, absolutely. Right. You don't need a, a 21 foot go fast Lund boat and a 400 horsepower mercury motor to fish grandma and grandpa's cabin uh, on this little tiny hidden lake in the middle of nowhere. Uh, in those instances, yeah, absolutely. Give me a 12 foot boat and a five horsepower motor and let me putz out there. That's what I did as a kid. Uh, my first boat was 12 feet long and had a three horsepower Johnson motor that didn't have neutral. When you started it, it was in gear, so you better be holding on to something. Uh, and I had a lot of fun in that boat, and uh, there are still times and places for those little fun fun uh, little boats like that, too. Yeah, definitely. How is zebra mussels affected lakes? And well, the zebra mussel has fishing. definitely, yeah, the, the zebra mussel has definitely affected lakes uh, with water quality. Uh, the water is cleaner. Uh, more pristine all across the country right now than it ever has been. Uh, I was living on Lake Erie when the zebra mussel invaded the Great Lakes and everyone was worried that it was going to destroy fishing because the lakes were going to get so clear and you won't be able to get close enough to the fish to catch them. And it did for a while change fishing, but 
Mother Nature has this way of keeping everything in balance. And as the zebra mussel changed, then the, the biomass changed, right? You got more weeds because light penetrated further and more weeds meant different types of zooplankton, which meant the minnows lived in different places and the fish had to look for food in different places. And the world was kind of tough for a while until everything figured it out again. And look at us now. Uh, you go to the Great Lakes and you still catch walleye after walleye after walleye. And we go to Lake of the Woods and still catch plenty of walleye. And we go to Mille Lacs Lake and catch limits of walleye and smallmouth bass and muskie. It, it didn't ruin fishing, but it changed fishing, right? New mm -hmm. techniques, um, different lures, casting further to get away from the boat, maybe fishing at night more often. But uh, it made the water cleaner. It changed the ecosystems. But I'm not going to let anyone tell me that it hurt fishing at all because we're still catching them. Yep. I mean, the, the ecosystem adapted and you just have to adapt with it on your tactics and strategy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay. River fishing. Where do you have the most success? Wing dams, current, etc. I love to fish wing dams. If, if I can go to the Mississippi river or the Illinois river or any of the other uh, more industrial type rivers in the Midwest that are channelized and have man-made wing dams. You're going to find me fishing wing dam after wing dam after wing dam. Uh, very fun, very exciting, very fast fishing, right? You can make three or four casts at a wing dam. If there's an active walleye there, you're going to catch it right away. Uh, it's not something where you have to have a lot of patience and sit there and wait them out. So uh, if I have one piece of structure to fish in a river, it's going to be a wing dam. Okay. Um, what lure are you tying on fishing near dams? So uh, I, I've got probably three main lures that I will fish with. The first would be a, a rather deep diving crankbait. Um, I love the Berkeley Dredger. Uh, Rapala makes a DT10 that stands for dives to 10 feet. Uh, those are great baits because they dive rather quickly. So you can throw them on the top of the wing dam and crank them right down the face of the wing dam, which is almost a vertical wall. So you want a bait that dives not really deep, but it dives fast. It goes almost straight down. Uh, then I'll try uh, a jigging spoon. Uh, there's a spoon that's relatively famous on the Mississippi River called a one-eye. It's made by Hutch Tackle. I've seen them in several shield stores. I know we carry them. Uh, three quarters of an ounce is my all-around favorite, but depending on current, you might have to go down or up a size or two. And same thing, throw those up on top of the wing dam and jig them down the face. And if that doesn't work, I'll go to a good old lead head jig and a four-inch ringworm, uh, just a, a kind of a shaky tail worm that you would bass fish with, just a, a straight worm with a little curly tail, uh, and work that very slowly across the face of the dam as well. And it, again, if there's fish there, one of those three lures is going to catch it. There's no doubt about it. Mm -hmm. What's your absolute favorite weather for fish and walleye? Boy, slight breeze, a little bit of overcast, and a storm about four hours away. <laughs> there you go. I like that answer. <laughs> uh, when you're doing spinners, what blade size works best? I usually start with a number three. Uh, that's right in the middle. Uh, it's not too small. It's not too big. I'm not going to say it works best all the time, 
but it's uh, it's a nice middle of the road place to start. Uh, if I'm catching a lot of fish and they're not very big, I might go to a larger blade. If I start with a size three and I'm not catching many fish, maybe I'll go to a smaller blade just to see if they're not quite as aggressive that day. But boy, a size number three is pretty hard to beat as a starting point. Okay. If you're fishing Minnesota opener, what's the first thing you're tying on? Wow. That's a good one. Uh, I don't know. It's really hard to beat a, a slip bobber. Uh, whether you put a minnow below it or a leech below it is going to depend on the body of water you're on, maybe on the water temperature. But, man, there's just something about Minnesota opener, grabbing three or four buddies, going out to a spot, anchoring up, and waiting for the bobber to go under. That's that's just a, a great traditional way to start fishing season in Minnesota. Absolutely. Can you explain how a mud line can change with sustained winds? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, a mud line is, is what we refer to when the wind blows against the shore and creates a band of dirty water. When the wind first starts to pick up, the edge of that mud line will be very, very distinct. Uh, the mud gets stirred up off the bottom. It comes up to the top of the lake and it creates a veil or, or kind of an awning of shade underneath it. So the mud that we see does not go top to bottom. It's maybe only the first foot of the water column. And you want to fish the edge of that or right under that. The longer the wind blows, the more that mud gets mixed into the water and the mud line dissipates. The water will get dirtier, but you lose that distinct edge and you lose that veil of cover and the mud is top to bottom and they seem to be much less effective areas to fish when that happens. So you want to try to get to a mud line early when it's that very distinct edge. Interesting. Does deeper water produce bigger walleye in the summer? I don't think so. Uh, I think it's the exact opposite. Personally, I find uh, bigger fish in shallower water. Uh, that's, you see that uh, not only just guiding at home on devil's Lake, but traveling the country tournament fishing, if I need to get a quick limit of fish, I go out deep, find that classic walleye structure, pick off five fish right away and feel comfortable for the tournament. But when I need a big bite, I'm usually trying to go as shallow as I possibly can. A lot of big fish live in really skinny water. I think the reason they grow so big in skinny water is because not very many people are up there trying to catch them. So uh, they live a lot longer. Mm hmm so river question here thoughts on pitching upstream versus downstream when they're migrating either going upstream or the fish are going downstream too well uh for me that that the answer to that question is what is going to be the easiest way for me to control my presentation uh if the current is really strong and i'm casting downstream and moving the lure back to me against the current that can be really tough, right? You need a really heavy jig or your crankbait is pulling so hard that you can hardly reel it back to the boat and that makes it challenging. So you may have to go to a trolling situation if you want to fish slowly upstream just because it's easier to make the presentation. Uh, what I find most effective river fishing is casting perpendicular to the current 
and letting my bait sweep downstream so it looks as natural as it can. And it's, it's being pushed to the fish by the current. So the fish really doesn't have to chase the bait. It can sit there and wait for the bait to come to it and just open its mouth and catch it. Uh, I seem to have much better luck that way than trying to fish directly upstream or directly downstream. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Okay, that, that perfect day that we had talked about before, what color lure do you have on for your first cast? It's going to depend on the, the water quality or clarity for me. Uh, if the water's really clean, I'm starting with white. Uh, actually, 90% of the time, I'm going to start with something white. For some reason, uh, it's a, a color that occurs naturally uh, while I seem to eat it in any environment I've ever been to. But if the water's got some color to it, it's absolutely impossible to beat fire tiger. Uh, day in and day out in dirty water, that fire tiger lure is going to produce fish after fish after fish. Okay. Can you walk us through your favorite slip bobber setups? Sure. Uh, I fish a slip bobber on a, on a relatively long rod. I use the seven and a half foot Shields Outfitter Walleye Series slip bobber rod. It's a spinning rod. I'll have a, a spinning reel size 2,500. I'll spool it with a 10 or 15 pound braided line uh, for my main line. I, I like probably 15 pound line a little better because it's thicker and the bobber stops grab on it a little better. Uh, 10 pound braid is really thin and it's hard to get your bobber not tight enough that it doesn't slip. Uh, but there's, you know, sometimes you, you got to use what you got to use. Um, uh, I like uh, a regular balsa float of some kind or styrofoam for that matter. But one thing for certain, the bobber itself will have a brass or metal insert in the straw because of using the fire line as your bobber slides up and down or braided line, I should say, as your bobber slides up and down the line, it tends to cut a groove in that straw and it can get stuck on your line when that groove gets too deep and your lure doesn't sink to the right depth, it gets stuck in that groove. So I want a brass insert in the bobber. Um, I'll then put a swivel and a liter of fluorocarbon, uh, usually eight or 10 pound line. I want it a little bit lighter than my main line to my hook or my jig. And then I'll bait it with 99% uh, of the time a leech, every now and again a minnow, very rarely do I put a night crawler below a slip bobber. They just don't wiggle very much. Um, and that's pretty much my setup. Uh, I like the super line, couple reasons. Number one, it floats on the water. So it's real easy to see where your line is going towards your bobber, especially if you're fishing with multiple rods in a boat. A bobber goes down and you don't know which rod it's attached to. With your line floating on the surface, it's just kind of like following the yellow brick road in the Wizard of Oz. You, you just start tracing the line on the water and whichever line doesn't have a bobber left, that's, that's the rod with the fish on it. And because of the no stretch, you get really, really good hook sets when you're bobber fishing. Uh, when you don't watch your bobber real close and it's out there floating around, you tend to get a lot of slack in your line. And with a no stretch line, if you don't get all that slack reeled up, you still get a pretty good hook set because the line just doesn't give. So that's my bobber setup in a nutshell. Nice. Okay. Uh, trolling crankbaits in the spring, depth, speed, 
advice on that? Well, if we could answer that question, Mike, we, we'd all be making a lot more money than we are right now, I think. <laughs> that's, a, that's a loaded one, right? How do you know what depth you're going to be trolling in the spring? Usually, we're going to be shallower than deeper in the springtime. And if we're defining spring as April and the first half of May, I'm going to say probably less than 10 feet of water. That means I'm going to probably be using some kind of shallow diving stick bait, right? Again, that original floating Rapala, uh, the Berkeley hit stick is a real popular one right now. Those are great early spring baits. Or I'm going to be using a smaller size, deeper diving bait, like a number five flicker shad, right? How can you go wrong with a number five flicker shad? Uh, Mike, you've probably caught thousands of walleyes on a number five flicker shad. And I know you're not necessarily a hardcore walleye angler, right? That's- yeah. Well, I do a decent amount of a decent amount of walleye fishing. You know, I, I like hunting, but when I'm out fishing, I've caught a few of the flicker shad. Yeah, the love, flicker shad's hard to beat. So uh, mm-hmm. I'm love probably going to like Love it. that Wonder Bread color and the oh, pearl, yeah. pearl Ghost. Yeah, Pearl Ghost is a slam dunk. That's uh, I think I if you came to my garage, I might have more Pearl Ghost flicker shads than the Fargo Shield store. <laughs> you know what? I probably I believe you on that one, Jeff. Yeah, yeah. I I loaded up on them suckers a couple years ago. I've got a lot. <laughs> All right, I got two last questions for you. Okay. How was the head-to-head in Detroit? My performance was disappointing to me. Um, I really wanted to perform. I wanted to come out of the gate hard, right? It's a brand-new tournament circuit. Um, I caught a lot of fish, but the head-to-head rules did not allow me to weigh the fish because they were not hooked inside the mouth. Uh, For some reason, the presentation I was using – the walleye didn't want to eat it. They wanted to pin it to the bottom, which meant I was hooking 90% of my fish in the lower jaw instead of inside the mouth. And according to the head-to-head rules, that is not a legal fish catch. So I had some great fishing. I reeled in a lot of fish. They just didn't count. Aside from that, the head-to-head format was the most incredibly exciting tournament I have ever fished in in my life. Uh, knowing what everyone else is catching all day long, right? You're going, "Uh Oh, I haven't caught one yet. And this guy's got 12 pounds and this guy has 18 pounds and this guy has 22 pounds and I haven't caught one yet. I'm doing something very wrong, right? Mm -hmm. You don't know that in any other fishing tournament, uh, only having a five hour fishing day, Mike, you might say "Oh, five hours. That's plenty of time. Five hours. I never had a drink of water and never ate a bite of food on either tournament day because you look down at the clock and you say, oh my goodness, I've only got two hours left. I've only got three hours left. Normally you look down at the clock and it's 10 o'clock in the morning and you're going, I got to fish till four. I got plenty of time to eat a sandwich, right? Mm -hmm. You look down at the clock now and it says 10 o'clock, you're done at one. It's only three more hours. You're not going to stop and eat with only three more hours of fishing time left. So uh, I've been watching it since I got home. Uh, and as frustrating as, as it is not being there, uh, you can't turn away. You can't turn away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, got- it's just such an exciting dynamic. You can see that <laughs> it is just becoming the yeah. future of tournaments. Yeah, it's, it is definitely the future of walleye fishing, and I'm really excited to be part of it. So it, it's going to be a fun summer. Absolutely. All right, last one. 
situations on when to use minnow versus crawler versus leech? So I kind of have a rule of thumb. Uh, it's water temperature based to me. Uh, I don't ice fish a lot and most people aren't going to save a leech to fish it through the ice. And I don't know anybody that's ever tried a night crawler through the ice. Maybe, you know, but I, I've never seen that before. So we'll leave ice fishing out of the equation early in the spring from the time the ice goes off until the water temperature is usually in the mid 40 degree range. It's all about minnows to me. Uh, once the water hits 40, 45 degrees and you can get leeches, I'll use leeches. Uh, I use leeches all the way through the summer, uh, but once the water gets into the 60, 65 degree range, then it's time to start playing with night crawlers, right? Putting them on spinners, putting them on a jig, uh, all those kind of things. Uh, leeches, I will use all the way up till the lake freezes in the fall if you can keep them alive. Uh, they get very, very hard to purchase after about the middle of August because of their life cycle, they're harder to trap and you just don't see them commercially available. So I actually become a leech hoarder about the 4th of July. I start buying <laughs> pounds and pounds and pounds of leeches and I keep them in my refrigerator. Uh, my wife doesn't like that so much when the, there's pounds and pounds of leeches in the refrigerator, but she's learned to tolerate it. <laughs> but man, if, if you have a leech, in your possession in October, it's like putting candy in front of a baby. It, they literally gobble them up because they're not used to seeing them that time of year, uh, and they absolutely mm, go crazy. Yeah, I mean, but, they've been they've been feeding on them for months, and it's like, oh, exactly. I got a leech again. Yeah, that exactly. Makes a lot of sense. Exactly. And uh, then big minnows in the fall, right? When water temperature gets down in the 40s and 30s, right before it freezes up, there's there's not much more fun to do than get a big red tail chub. And I mean big, five, six, seven inches long and put it on a Lindy rig and go put it in front of a giant walleye and wait for it to chomp down on it. That's uh, that's one of the, my most favorite things to do in the fall of the year is fish great big minnows. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, that covers it, Johnny. Thank you so much for your time and for your expertise. Yeah, it's fun. It's always fun. It's a good time to, to do these things. So do you get tomorrow off now, Mike, because you had to work till nine o'clock at night or what? Well, I got a couple of things to wrap up. We got to make sure we get these podcasts out. Um, we're going to we're gonna take all this virtual fish series, the three nights, and we're going to deploy them here uh, live tomorrow. Once that's done, okay. uh, I'm headed back to my parents, and I'm going to do some prep for, uh, for turkey hunting. I'm hoping, oh, to get, I'm hoping to get both my parents on a turkey Saturday awesome. morning. Good. All right. Well, I can't wait again, to do it again. Thank anytime, you so much, anytime. Johnny. All right. All Have right, yourself man. a good night. Yeah, you too. Take care. Bye now. Thank you for listening to the Shields Outdoors podcast. Stay tuned for future segments and visit our social media pages, Shields Outdoors on Facebook and Instagram for daily updates.